wrong place. Oh wait, wrong place. Oh shoot, wrong spot. Boom. Hey, how you guys doing out there? Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. Sniper. It's, it's I think, like the, the Zippa commercial, right? Zippa. Is it Zippa? Zippa? Whatever the heck the case may be. But anyway, I uh, hope you guys had a good Labor Day weekend. Everybody was safe and all that. And uh, good to see, I guess, the hurricane took a turn, right? Didn't, didn't fully nail everybody down there in Florida. Got family and stuff down there in Florida, other side, Sarasotans, all that. So... I dig it. I get what you guys are going on, and, and you guys dodged a big bullet. Um, I want to start off by thanking everybody in Minnesota. Had an excellent time at the Precision Rifle Course up at the Gopher uh, Rifle and Gun Club up there. Uh, really, I, um, a lot of students, 18 students, packed house. I thought that was great. Um, and I want to thank Eric and... Barbie, Steve, the board, all the guys, Mike, thank everybody out there who helped put that together. Um, this was the thing. Gun clubs are pretty tough sometimes, man, and they had to go through the board. They had to get a vote. I mean, we've seen it in Alaska a little bit, not as bad as these guys have it. There's some old established people. And, and then on top of that, there's the logistics of, you know, a commercial endeavor at the range. I know like Colorado Rifle Club, when I first moved out here and tried talking with them, their board was like, no, you know, they'll let like the concealed carry guy do his classes and do all that stuff. But then when I'm like, hey, can I do classes? And they're like, no, that's commercial business. I'm like, well, what about the concealed carry guy? He's like, well, he offers a discount to the uh, to the members. I'm like, I offer a discount to the members if you want. I'm all good with, you no, know, no. So anyway, uh, so they had to go through that, and and we ended up doing, uh, we did the presentation, uh, brought everybody on the same page, and then uh, we spent uh, 100, 200 yards on the first day, just because the way the range is, you know, got to let other people use it, and then we went to the high power range on the second day, and all uh, day two was all all shooting. One thing I want to mention too, um, um, the I think his name is God, is Adam up there, up in Canada. We used a shot marker up there, and I have one. I actually have to put it together. I've had that shot marker, the digital sound bar, yada, 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 for a while, and I just never put it together. I'm trying to arrange the range. We had to fix some things. The cows broke a few of our frames and stuff, and Mike had just made them. Uh, so now I, I want to put that together. But when we were at Gunsight, we used it, and... It was kind of like, yeah, whatever, no big deal. And, and and it really didn't seem like a useful tool to me in that context. But uh, the vice president of the Gopher uh, range, uh, Steve, he's a Palma shooter, a nationally known world record Palma shooter guy, however their their uh, situation works. But he, he's done very well in Palma. So he had four of these shot markers attached to the target boards down there because um, it is an NRA type range. And um, so what happens is the uh, we used them and it was set up different than it was at Gunsight. It had a lot more information available. It had a lot of, um, you know, features and it was a really good tool to use in this context when you have a 
uh, paper target frame system like on NRA type high power ranges. Because the biggest throwback is, or drawback, not throwback, drawback, throwback was Darlington. Got to watch the race. Um, it was rain delayed and all that. So that was very cool. But uh, I'll get into that in a minute. But anyway, so what what you could do is you set this up in the NRA, the, the frame system. You got your target, your paper target there. And the biggest drawback to a range like that for guys like us, ones who are out there by themselves and all that is how do you spot, see, and mark where you're hitting when nobody's downrange? You basically got to run back and forth. And I know I played that game because, like I said, Colorado uh, Rifle Club, they have the steel range, which only goes to uh, 500 meters. But then you have the NRA, the, the high power range, which goes to 1,000 yards, but then it's paper targets, right? So at this range, the gopher range there, they can put steel behind the berm. And we had a really cool setup. Uh, because the class was big, I wanted the people to be able to shoot while I'm working with the individual, right? So you're not waiting for me the whole time. Yeah, you got to wait for me to a certain extent. But when I get there, you know, it's if you're waiting... 15 minutes for me to get to you and then I give you five rounds to shoot and you hit everything and then I move on to the next guy and you don't shoot anymore it's a slow day so we put two racks up and what I did is I had uh, a big and small target for me and then I had two racks of like big to really small almost KYL ish for you other guys to go okay now that you're good go shoot those other racks all right now you're good go shoot those other racks and guys got some really good round counts in doing it that way it worked out excellent for everybody and but this the target the nice thing is that eric got to work with everybody with the electronic target the shot marker from canada there he's the same guy who does the auto trickler okay so you guys read all the auto trickler all that stuff and what happened was um, they had it set up that not it gives you your SDs, it gives you your group size. So guys who like, there was some guys there that shot sub-minute groups at 1,000 yards. And what Eric would do is he'd get you on the target, right, the NRA target. He had a grid set up because the NRA target, as we know, Mills versus MOA. Mills versus MOA. And um, so anyway, it, the the rings in an, in an NRA target, your X ring to your 10, 9, 8, 7 are in MOA. But they had like an overlay grid that was in two tenths grids. So we were able to kind of dial people into the X ring pretty easy. Just, you know, shoot your group, do your dope, the whole thing. And then um, Eric, I saw he kind of brought you into the center once he had you centered, he had you shoot a, like a five-round group for record. And it was really cool to see the students get a nice visual of what they're, where they are in their progression, their training. And there was, a, like I said, several guys had sub-minute groups, half-minute, .6, things like that, based on the computer and the shot. You know, and there was a couple guys uh, as well, and this is also really cool. They had like a good group with just that one thrown out, and maybe they knew, and you should know that's part of the calling your shot, right? So if you're out there and you're shooting, and you, the nice thing is everybody was able to access the shot marker on their own phone, 
So they had tablets as well. But I, and, and most of the time I saw guys had the tablet like off to the side right in front of them so they could see, you know, where they're shooting. So then you'll know. Okay, see that one that's outside the group that's opening me up to like a 1.2 MOA size group? Yep, I see that one. Okay, if we, if we hide that shot, and you know which one that was, if we hide that shot, well, then I have a really great group. Really? You know, but then, you know, put it back because that's your reality. And it's like, okay, so this is kind of what you have to work on, that consistency. And I want to say, because people ask me all the time, what's the biggest thing you see that people do wrong. And and usually it's trigger control and follow through combined, right? It's that trigger system. It's the press and then either the tap, the crush or something and they're not necessarily following through. Well, like I had um one of the guys out there, Nate B. Um, I've been around, it's funny, I, I see meet so many people, I'm terrible with names. I gotta start really like name taping everybody to a degree because I'm just so bad at it and I do apologize for that. It sucks because, you know, the bigger classes, two-day classes, I, I, it's it's kind of a limited interaction in a way where the name is like, and it's a piece of information. If I take in something important, leaves, goes out. So I go off um, and Nate, you know, I'm looking at him and, and I've, he's shot at Kane. And he shot all over. I've seen him. He shot Sniper's Hide matches and he came to the class and he's by no means a new shooter. So I'm watching him as an experienced shooter. He's done really well in events. He's a PRS guy and he's a truck driver. So he travels around the country and what he'll do is he'll shoot these various matches and go to different places. And one of the things that we noticed with him was that his trigger press was different every single time. So it's that consistency of press the trigger, right? Press, break, freeze, you know, when you see the result, run the bolt, boom, you know, so you need that little bit of hesitation, especially in practice, right? Because when we're in the real kind of, man, my things are all dinging and banging. Sorry about that, guys. It's just all over the place today. But, you know, so when you're in the moment, when you're on the clock, you know, everything's going to run so much faster. Okay, you're going to go in and, and this. I kind of got this from almost like a music thing too, like the drummers keeping time. Right. So you can't have a drummer like in the studio who's in the or in practice who's racing because that's speeding up that they'll do will then kind of change the tempo. But when they're live, they'll go fast. You know what I mean? Because everybody's hyped up in adrenaline and you're playing really quick. It's kind of like, I call it like my Iron Maiden rule, man. Because like, you know, they'll go a little quicker. They'll have a certain cadence and a pace on the studio stuff. But when you go see them live, their live shows are really kick ass. And, and they just, they gallop quicker. You know what I mean? So um, that's kind of cool that you can see that. And this is where we're, we're seeing the, 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 Biggest improvement is getting that trigger down, getting that trigger down, getting that trigger down, and making sure it's a press, the shot's going to break, you're going to freeze, you're maintaining your focus through the scope down range to the target, because that's where the bullet's going. Man, my stuff is all just going off today. So then what happens is then when you see the result of your shot, come off of it and then run the bolt. Right. Because there's no reason 
if distance gives you time and opportunity, I mean, unless you're in short range with a lower priority, it's like, dude, I got I got four M away a target there because I'm super close, but it's short and I got to be quick. Then you can be sloppy. But when you're far away, right, distance is supposed to give you time and opportunity. When you're far away, the targets become smaller, right? So you got to really focus in on that execution of, of the uh of the shot procedure, the shot cycle, your, your, uh, your process, your methods of firing. So it's that press, break, freeze, follow through, following the bullet to the target, see the result of the shot, come off, run the bolt. Cause then when you're in that moment, you'll go quick and it'll work out really well. But I always work on that I'm always a little slower when I'm practicing, unless I'm practicing to be really fast. I do both. You know what I mean? I practice shooting slow, then I practice shooting fast. Hey, I threw that out to you guys the other day. Some scary stuff right there, man. That was just some scary. So uh, I threw this out the other day about the word dog, D-O-G, right? Where does dog come from? And I got a whole bunch of texts and emails and, and like, dude, like dog's an unknown word. Well, Eric's girl Barbie there, she sent me a thing yesterday or the day before that there's actually a Bible reference to dog in that an apostles or somebody, dog was like a slang, almost like a scumbag kind of slang, and it was somebody kind of almost like a homeless situation, I think. I'd have to go back and reread it again, but it was almost as if there were... Uh, in a community, you almost had like homeless people that hung around. And I think it almost bordered on like a slave situation. So kind of looking at it where the, like a slave they had chained, but dogs were also kept for security, right? Bark lets you know what's going on. Well, it was almost like this slave style of person was then replaced by a dog. You know, because, again, Canis, like, I didn't even know this until later, like, Canary Islands. You think Canaries, birds, Canary Islands? Canaries are named after a dog or something. It's like Canis. It was Canis Island that became, like, Canary Island, you know. But well, I think what happened with the word dog is this sort of second-class slave-type citizen then, you know, fell out of favor and you didn't, you know, you weren't carrying slaves around as much anymore. But what replaced it as man's best friend is is the dog. And so they kind of put that Hebrew word onto it. So I'm going to look into that. So it might be kind of a cool little thing to see if that's where it came from. But um, yeah, she sent me that over. But everybody else going into like Oxford dictionaries and all those other dictionaries and stuff trying to find the origin of dog, they don't have it. It's an unknown origin. And it really lends like totally into the ancient alien theory and all that stuff. So it was kind of cool. But um, yeah, so I, I really do appreciate everything. It's always a learning experience doing these classes. And to speak to the classes... Um, I spoke with uh, Mike in the September 20th Mile High classes ago. Right now we got six people signed up for that September class. And at the same time, I got an email or a call, a phone call from a guy who was a former student. And he's looking to bring like three of his friends and he wanted to come to like the September class. 
And we really don't have the seats. Like Mark had said originally, there might have been like two seats from people who dropped out. But he had like new shooter. He wanted to bring friends with him who hadn't gone through PR1. So September, if you're really looking for this last minute, hey, I want to get into a class. I know it's super short notice, but I do have the openings for people here in Colorado on September 20th. So you'd come in the 19th, you'd leave the 22nd or 23rd, 23rd would be Monday. So the 19th is the day before, the 23rd is the day after, and that would be your total block of missing time kind of deal for a final mile high class uh, uh, that has availability. We have the October class, like I said, overflow, October at Treadproof, full um, you know, the Alaska one for people to kind of last minute that unless you're in Alaska, I don't see a lower 48 guy last minuting up to Alaska for the PR2. And we, we usually require up there you have taken PR1 for the PR2 just because we don't go through the entire PowerPoint and it's a it's a shorter program. So you're missing our main element to it. But the September class for mile high has all of that and then some. Uh, a little bit more because one of the guys had been to Alaska and he's like, well, I really didn't get the wind work I wanted. It's like, yeah, there is no wind in Alaska, dude. We're lucky to have a mile an hour to th- like a bad day when you could see it is three miles an hour. You know, that's kind of like all we ever really see up there, which actually makes it really good for teaching people, but not for teaching people the wind. You know, we don't do a focus on the wind in Alaska. We do a focus on the wind in Colorado. So that's where uh, if you want to learn that wind, if you want to kind of go to that next level with that stuff, you'd more or less want the Colorado class over the Alaska class. I mean, the, the Alaska class is really the hammer you down, fundamentals dope you out under those conditions. And then you got the Mark and Frank show, which was really like a high pressure Kind of, you know, because Mark won't let you get away with shit. You know, I may be, oh, you're, you're, you're off. You don't feel good. You're, you know, your shoulder hurts and you're off of here a little bit. All right, Nanny, Mark, no, fuck no, dude. You're doing it this way. So, um, you know, that's kind of a little bit of the difference between the two. But I mean, when we move to look into next year and people are already asking me about next year and what's going on, I'm going to probably be blowing this out even a little bit bigger and wider and, and grabbing a little bit more time on the range with people. So um, we'll take a look, man. I think we're going to have some big changes for next year to include more of Mark down here with me in doing some of these classes. Like if I go to Minnesota next year, odds are I'm going to bring Mark. You know what I mean? So it'll be a case like that where even, you know, they want to do it more. The Altus is a go. I got to talk to Mike Magnum over there in, in, uh, I'll talk to Mike and those guys down at Altus a little bit this week and get that uh, sorted out. So there's going to be like classes at Altus, right? That'll have a couple of us there. There'll be the Minnesota class because they, they they invited me back and I really appreciate that. I always want, I always want those guys, like I said, the, you know, the vice president, Steve, Mike, who's their PRS coordinator guy, Eric, who brought me in there. I want those guys to look good via their board, right? Via their members of their own range. So if people are observing, if people come by, and we had people kind of come in and check out what we were doing, you know what I mean? Who are members of that range. They they kind of wandered in and out and around us here and there. So um, 
what would happen is I want those guys to look good. You know what I mean? I want the I want no drama. I want the board to come back and say we had tons of positive results. You guys were safe. You guys were clean. I mean, you know, leave the range zero footprint like we were never there. And it was cool with their range. They have some super, super, not heavy, but tricky wind action. And tricky enough where if you're trying to bang that X ring or even that 10 ring, it's going to mess you up. And I had great conversations talking with Steve as a Palma guy with his strategy. And, you know, he was talking like, I'm going to hang on the pro side over here. So if the wind gusts up or does something, I'm not going to drop a point. So there was some really cool talking to them. And, man, I you know, they're big into the internal ballistic thing. Like, listen to him kind of, like, obsess over reamers and stuff for a 308. I was kind of, like, surprised how much thought and effort they put into their um their internal of their their barrel dimensions and what they're doing and that they don't want to have to chase erosion and things like that so it was kind of interesting to listen to them talk geometry of their chambers for competition that requires you to hit a half minute x-ring you know what i mean and so, or they're a minute X-ring, I think, at Palma. I think it's half an F class. See, there's that progression. Palma's iron sights in a sling, no support. And then when you get too old to do that, you go to F class. And that's kind of how that works. Where you can kind of, it used to be where you just took your Palma rifle and put a scope on it for F class. And then it became into the open division and all the craziness that you kind of see with F-Class where it becomes belly bench rest now. But once you get too old to do Palma, then you become the F-Class kind of guys. I think that's going to be my new way of drinking coffee and having something to drink while I'm doing it so I'm not like gulping in in your ear when you're listening to this. But uh, no, it was really kind of an interesting conversation. It was cool because... They had all their NRA type range flags going down the the, um, the range, you know, because that's part of their safety protocol. And I was able to get photographs of the different flags going all different directions because they're cut into the woods. They have these hills that go up and down. And in between the yard lines in the hills is water and swamp. And it just creates this swirling, raising, crazy. I saw a lot of vertical on that range, man. It was kind of crazy. And not all the time. You know, there was a bunch of this vertical spread. There's, I mean, never seen the range before, but then watching people shoot and trying to dissect what I'm seeing. And then talk to like, I had range helper out there, Chuck. Older guy, been on that range a long time. And he's kind of validating some of what I'm seeing. He's adding to it. Yeah, today we're seeing it look like this. But on certain days, that same situation you're looking at right now will do that. You know, and and it's really kind of interesting to see how that plays out on these different ranges. And I just love the idea of traveling around. And it's not just meeting a different group of shooters because... The shooters are almost interchangeable. You know, kind of the, some of the issues we see in Alaska, we see in, you know, Minnesota. Some of the issues I saw in Minnesota, I've seen in Colorado. What changes in, in what's dynamic with, like, if you take those places and even a tread proof in, in you know, an Altus when I've been there, is the range dynamic. 
How does the terrain, how does the situation, you know, affect how you approach a shot? You know, how? what's your strategy for the terrain you're looking at? What's the strategy for the size of the target you're shooting at? You know what I mean? What's your strat? Have you been there before? Have you never been there before? Are you looking at these conditions for the very first time? And now, because you're in a match, you're required to perform. So what's your diagnostic like process? What are you looking at when you show up for the very first time? Okay, you're like Phil Vallejo's got his match this month. Hey, Phil. Hey, Kalen. Haven't talked to you guys in a while. I throw a note on what Kalen's thing. But just wanted to say hi. So Phil's got his Gunworks match going out, right? And you got two distinct different ranges you're going to be operating on. You got sort of that square range that they use as their local, that that the PRSE side of things. And then you have that field course where they had the animal targets and it's more kind of 360-ish, right? I'm almost 270 worth of shooting there. So you're kind of approach would almost be different because you have so much more area so much more wind the terrain is a lot farther away but it's still going to have various effects and we saw these different effects i mean and that was the one thing that i had mentioned that i liked a lot about even on the prs side of things how wide they spread the targets so you're not just shooting in the dead exact same direction at one target for every shot per stage. You know what I mean? So it's like, here's stage one. You got three targets dead in front of you, you know, that you're going to shoot. You're going to go shoot from this position, shoot this target. From this position, shoot that target. From this position, shoot that target and repeat. Okay. Well, what they did, it was like, okay, but target one is, you know, 30 degrees to the left. Target two is pretty centered up in front of you. Target three is 45 degrees to the right, you know, so now you're kind of changing that wind aspect. And I like that a lot because to me, that's the factor that you need to worry about. Like if you're practicing on your home range and you're doing really well and you're and you got your um you, your abilities, your your kind of accuracy and precision is at a place you're comfortable with. Okay. Well, now you say, okay, I'm going to venture out and I'm going to travel somewhere to shoot a national match someplace. And then you don't do as well. And you're like, oh man, what the heck? Man, all kinds of stupid freaking emails all day. So you're like, oh man, what the heck is going on? You know, it's like, I did really good at home and I shot like shit over here. Well, what changed? Location. Yeah, there's pressure from the match. And, you know, there, there, there's things that get in your head, but it's fish out of water, right? It's this situation where you've practiced at home, you've practiced at home, you've practiced at home, you've gotten yourself comfortable, and this is where the good, bad shooter comes in, okay? So now, you, 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 your, your, your foundation is based on that location, and you're lacking in your fundamental foundation a little bit, Right? So then you go to a new place and you kind of got to get all comfortable again. You, you, you start second guessing things, your abilities. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily you in your shooting, but now you're looking at this as an unknown. Oh, it's like, oh, damn, you know, strategy, right? Think about this. We were talking with the Palma and he was talking strategy of 
how to shoot a target because he was saying he was like neck and neck with with somebody and um let me try to turn this damn thing off because i'm getting tired of hearing it in my ear uh anyway so you're 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 kind of looking at a strategy and what happens is our guys then want to include themselves in that strategy right you know what i'm saying so it's not like you're just looking straight up at terrain well how am i going to map out the winds how am i looking at the angles how how am i going to you know engage this stage well part of that you start thinking about yourself and that's where that foundation thing needs to be a little thicker a little more solid where you go i know i'm good I know I don't have to worry about me. And if I just execute the same thing that I did when I was home practicing, I should be good here. But what what's different? Well, the wind pattern here is different. That's what I have to fix, which is why WTF wind is one. Because wind is that factor that's going to change. And that wind factor will change with terrain from range to range. The distance to the target won't change. An 800-yard shot is always going to be an 800-yard shot. And if you can make an 800-yard shot 10 out of 10 on your range, you should be able to make an 800-yard shot 10 out of 10 on another range. But that's where we fall down. That's where we have a problem. You know what I mean? So that's kind of where that strategy comes into play. And that's where that thought process for you Right, my brain. Hey, man, I know I'm good on this. I know I, I understand my trigger and I got my follow through. Make that foundation a little thicker becomes less of an equation, less of a factor in the equation. Right. I'm going to address this barricade the same way I practice to address the barricade. Just because you're in a new place doesn't mean you change up how you address that barricade. What you're going to change is whether or not you need to hold edge of plate, wind, what case may be, right? The only factor that should change is W, wind. Target range, trajectory is going to stay the same unless there's angles involved and that could be a terrain issue there, right? Then your fundamentals of marksmanship, your pre-shot checklist, W, T, F, wind, target, trajectory, range, however you want to look at it, and then fundamentals of marksmanship. That shouldn't change. So, something to think about, you know? Anyway, um, yeah, I got to watch the Darlington race. I was kind of digging on that. I stayed up all friggin' night like the rest of everybody. I kind of had a little window where I was getting ready to fall asleep, like right around, I don't know, 11 to 30 or something like that, and I fought through it, and then the next thing you know, trying to go to sleep after that was a pain in the ass. But, um, no, it was ended up being a pretty decent little race, so, digging on that. So, on, uh, the front row guys listening, man. Matty D, dudes. Matty D. That guy's taking friggin'. He's smoking some big name teams consistently in the last couple weeks. You know what I mean? And he needs a ride. Matty D needs to be driving a car somewhere. Just saying, you know. Nice little Italian boy from down south someplace. I don't know. I think he's Alabama or something, isn't he? Anyway. So, um... Yeah, so I was digging on that, got to watch that, fly back. I hate that Minneapolis airport, man. Minneapolis has to be the worst airport that I've been to where I've actually had to, like, not so much gate to gate, but leaving it and coming in sucks. 
Even like the rental car was supposed to be easier doing like the, the you know, I had the reserve car, walk in, keys in there, don't have to do nothing. I hop in it, I go. Well, then when you come back, you just kind of leave it and walk away from it. And it was still a mess to get out and get in and do the whole thing. And then trying to figure out the signs were terrible. I hated that airport. Was not a fan. Although my TSA guy was cool as hell. It was the same TSA guy that I had um, checking me in, like, you know, checking your ID. Well, then he got rotated over to when I was going through the, you know, the ultraviolet scanner thing that was cooking me from the inside. And, and he had to pat me down because my Arteryx pants, I have these like Arteryx climbing pants. And for whatever reason, not every airport, but like every third trip, they flag my groin area. And I got to get like the, you know, the, the testy feel. And, and so he had to go do that. So that was fun. Appreciate it, dude. You know, thanks for the pat on the back after. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, I did that. And then uh, what was I going to There was something else, too, I wanted to say about the airport. Man, I can't. Now I just I lost my. Oh, that was it. I'm going to tell you right. Because people want to always talk about flying with their rifle system. What the fuck, dude? It's like, stop making so much noise. Anyway, so, um. Junk mail, too. All it is is junk mail. So, flying, right? So, I fly with all this stuff, and in my bag, I got a, I got a cool Osprey duffel kind of wheel bag that works really great. And I got my tripod in there. I got some bags in there, and usually the bags are the super light fill ones. I might my rear bag for a thing, and then I have one of the Warhorse ones in there, and it's got the mega light fill. And so... I got that in there. I got a spotting scope in there, okay? Then after that, it's really just some targets and some stuff, paper stuff, you know what I mean? Every time, like lately, TSA goes in my bag. You know what I mean? People are like, they can't go in your stuff. What I'm like, dude, they go in your stuff, which is why, you know, when people freak out that most of the time I fly with TSA locks. The only time I switched off from TSA locks is when that United guy wanted to do the reach in and touch on my rifle case and I had to switch to a lock with a shorter shank because the TSA locks have a little longer of a shank. But the thing is, even after your stuff is like through security, it can still flag and they still check. And that was the thing where at the gate in Tennessee, because, you know, here, here was the deal. In United, when I was flying from Tennessee with my rifle, I just handed the friggin' counterperson my rifle. There was no room, no TSA check, no nothing. And it's like, I didn't have the TSA locks on there because just prior, like two trips prior, the United guy was the reaching and touch. So I switched over to regular locks, you know? Well, sure as hell, I waited. I sat there for half hour minimum waiting to see if they called me to get into the case. Because I know they're gonna. They do it every single time they open the case. So I'm like, there's no room, no nothing, no this, no that. And the guy's like, nope, just give us the rifle case. I'm like, all right, dude. And this was in the Nashville airport. Hand him my rifle case. And I'm like, oh, Tennessee, Nashville. They're probably just super chill with all this stuff. See rifles every day. Don't care. You know? Nope. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Finally, nothing happens. I go through security. I go to my, uh, um, I go to my gate, and I'm sitting down. And what do we all do? Put on headphones, right? I'm listening to music the whole time. But I always kind of got this one eye on the, um, on the counter for when they make an announcement. Because I mean, you got bows or beats or whatever noise canceling. You're not hearing those announcements and shit. 
Well, sure as hell, like just before, like 15 minutes before we were going to board the plane, like literally 15 minutes before we were going to board the plane, they call me and want the key to open my rifle case. Now, here's where everybody, oh, don't give me your key. Don't do this bullshit, dude. I give them it to them because, and they didn't go back through. They went through the gate and they checked something like under the damn plane. You know what I mean? They went through the gate and down below to baggage and not back into the airport. You know what I mean? So if had I had TSA locks on there, TSA would have just opened it up, put the note in it that they were in it. And I wouldn't have risked my rifle staying in Nashville because had I not heard the announcement, two choices. They either cut the locks and open it anyway, or the rifle wouldn't fly. Okay. And I'll get on the plane, get to Colorado and go, where's my rifle case? And they'll be like, oh, it's back in Nashville. We called you and you didn't answer. So, eh, you know what I mean? There's always these little things. But now the, 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 the TSA guy was funny as hell, man. He was a comedian and, and I had a good time. But they did go in my check bag and they look at my tripod, the spotting scope. And that's all that's in there. There's like zero contraband, zero, no batteries, no stuff. You know, it's not like they could say, well, we thought we saw lithium battery. I got no electronics in there. You know, like the, the tripod and the spotting scope are really the only two things in my check bag of value on that degree, you know? So it's not like I'm running, like there's all kinds of electronics and things or something. But anyway, so no, I just thought it's interesting about the people who think like, you know, how how they try to like, you know, jailhouse lawyer the rules and interpret things when the reality on the ground is it's so different from place to place and to the point where I'm starting to see it's airline differences too, and not just like the airline rule, but how the airline processes or how the airline engages in the process. You know what I mean? Like that Nashville, they bring my rifle in, they don't send you to check, but in Denver, you go to a room and check, you know, and, and it just seems like that reach in and touch. That was an airline thing, you know, the rifle, the and I guess Delta now or whatever, puts the wire ties on it too because they don't want you opening it like that guy did in Florida at baggage claim. Like what they're kind of, what they're trying, some airlines are trying to prevent the idea that it's going to come off the conveyor, you're going to open it up and have it inside the airport. You know what I mean? So there's all these little bitties and even Delta, one of them, I think it's Delta too, like tags your bag as having a firearm, even if it's like a pistol in a check bag. You know, because you can have a hard locked case in your checked bag, but they'll still mark it and say, guess what's in here, dudes? You know what I mean? So there's all this weirdness going around, but don't sweat it. I fly with this stuff all the time. It's no big deal. Give your I always give myself two hours. I'm super chill. I'd rather sit down, go to the United Club or go do something else because I'm early than to have to scramble. You know what I mean? I always want to be there early enough so I can take my time. I could chill out. I don't have to really worry about it. And, um, you know, even to the case where like just an idea when I fly to Alaska with the rifles all the time, when I'm coming back, I can't go to the kiosk because the kiosk will lock up and says, no, you need an additional layer of security. They know I flew up with a rifle and they won't let me go to the kiosk. They'll say, nope, kiosk won't work for you. You got to go see a person. And then I have to go get the person to because they know I have a rifle. 
So yeah, man, I, I don't don't sweat it. Fly with it. Enjoy it. Go do your thing. Go travel. Go get exposure to multiple locations. You know what I mean? It's fun. It's cool. It works out. That's why I like even taking classes in different places. You mean there there is a situation with guys that one time's not quite enough to absorb everything. It goes by quick. You're you're kind of getting a fire hose worth of data. You know, so the first time really doesn't absorb. It's the 80, 40, 20. So if I can present my curriculum there to you and I'm 80% successful, well, you're going to absorb 40% of that. And then you're going to be able to successfully recite 20%, the 80, 40, 20, right? Well, if you do it twice, and you got the 40% comprehension, well, now you got up to the 80% for the second time. And your 20 is now 40, and you're that much more. So it's not uncommon for us to see a student take more than one class from us at various times, or you know, even though, because that, that was a question Nate had answered. You know, as an experienced PRS-type shooter, why is he taking a basic two-day class? Because I'm still going to focus on him and give him feedback and tell him, hey, dude, your trigger's doing something different every single time. You know, you're good here, you're good here. But when I'm watching your finger, it's in a different place, it's in a different press every single time. And that's great feedback for that guy. What does that mean? Dry fire. And I even said to him, dude, why don't you build like a simulator rig, like half a stock with a trigger with like a bolt, just a cock it kind of thing with no barrel in you know, trigger while you're driving and do dry fire. You know what I mean? All you got to do is just figure out how to reset that trigger and cock it and then make a fixture that looks that, that feels exactly like the rifle you're shooting. And, and then you could practice that dry press, you know? So that was something that, that, you know, we kind of talked about anyway, I got to head out. I got to do a class this morning. I got some guys going up somewhere and and doing some stuff. So I got to meet them in a little bit. So I got to get ready for that. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for being part of the Everyday Sniper. Thanks for the uh, post. I'm gonna get. I'm getting a ton of Podbean comments. I see that. I'm gonna get caught up with you guys in the Podbean comments. So uh, no worries there. I, I know I got a lot of good questions coming in on the uh, on the app. Make sure you go into that Podbean app and throw your comments down. We're trying to get some big comment numbers up there because at the end of the year. Podbean, when they start scoring everybody and have their like best of 2019, how much we comment is one of the uh, factors they look at. So that's a metric that we want to kind of boost up a little bit is, is the Podbean comments. All right, guys. So thanks for listening. Thanks for that. Head over to Sniper Side. Just been some kind of comic. I was bored coming in, man. I was making some silly posts. There's a crazy bubble level one, and there was another, like, where's your zero one? That kind of got out of hand last night. All kinds of crazy shit. All righty. I will talk to you later. Have a good one. Boom.